another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And we have some Richard Linklater this week, our first Linklater film in the collection. Yeah, there's not too many in the collection, I found out. There's this and then the Before trilogy. And Dazed and Confused. Oh, of course, and Dazed and Confused, yeah. But that's it, and... and Linklater has, like, I would say, the, one of the most eclectic filmographies in the history of film to me. I mean, the yeah. fact that he's done this, he's done sci-fi with Scanner Darkly, he's done other animations like Waking Life. Waking, Waking Life, I think, is the other glaring one that probably should be in Criterion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. uh, but then he's done, like, School of Rock as well. Which is not a bad film at it's all. It's not a bad film. But it's a very different film. It's a studio comedy. Similar as well to like The Newton Boys, which was like a m- mid-90s kind of um, gangster movie with Ethan Hawke and Vincent D'Onofrio and Skeet Ulrich, if you remember that guy. Skeet. Skeet Ulrich. He was uh, the bad guy in the first Scream, Sydney's boyfriend. Oh, yeah, yeah. Spoiler yeah. for Scream. <laughs> um, That's fun. Uh, but also like Bernie. I love Bernie. I am a huge flag waver for Bernie. I think that is arguably one of his best films and one of the best films of 2011. I fucking love Bernie. I don't know why, but I just really do. <laughs> so it's, it's diverse. His filmography is diverse in its themes and approach. Yeah, and then, oh no, of course, there's another giant one that's also our criterion that we forgot about. Boyhood. Oh, Boyhood, yeah. Boyhood. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've just got his uh, IMDb up at the moment, and yeah, it is literally all over the map. Like, yeah. And, and to think about it, like, uh, post-Waking Life and Tape, which is also a really weird movie, uh, set in a hotel room with uh, Robert Sean Leonard, Ethan Hawke, and Uma Thurman. That's it. Um, when he made that, and then, like, when he's going off and doing School of Rock and Bad News Bears remake and all that stuff, in the background, he's making Boyhood at the same time. <laughs> yeah. but And he's never gone to a film school as well, so he's kind of really interesting director yeah. filmmaker and he's one where like he'd, he'd made one film before this that is very kind of avant-garde and is actually included in the Criterion set um, it's called It's Impossible to Learn to Plow by Reading Books uh, it's like a hundred like you know hour ten minute long little kind of experimental short film um, it, but this is widely considered to be like really his first film essentially okay and it he hits the ground running and it is even if you didn't know this was a Richard Linklater film, if you put this on for someone who is familiar with the rest of his body of work, they would be like, did Richard Linklater make this? Yes. It, it's right. he has He's one of those directors that has a very clear and distinct style that has kind of followed through. On the surface, I, I hadn't seen this film. Mm. And I actually watched it twice today. Oh, wow. Okay. Because <laughs> it's on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. So I, I watched it, uh, not on YouTube, and then... I was kind of doing some research and going down a lot of rabbit holes because this film has lots of references, which if you feel like you want to learn more, you can really dive in. Yeah. Uh, and I was on YouTube and kind of it popped up on the feed and I ended up just watching it again. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm quite, I'm somewhat familiar with his works, but not, I wouldn't say that, you know, I, I've had a deep dive. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the Before Trilogy, for example, but... This one was so original and unique 
and fascinating yeah in basically every way you could approach a film that i was kind of blown away mm. it, it is a real unique film and that's why like leading up to this episode i i kept saying like i'm very excited for this episode and mainly to see what you think and i think at the end of last week i sort of said it's not going to be what you think it is it, it's like whatever you think this film is going to be it's not that and was i right like yeah. Well, it's, yeah i mean when you look at the title slacker uh you know I'm, I'm thinking well it's a film made in 1990 called slacker it's going to be about young kids not doing much you, you think it's gonna be like a clerks type of movie yeah yeah and that it's it kind of is like that but it's way more grand than just simply about you know kids growing up in the 90s yeah not kids, but you know, young adults. Yeah, uh, like you Generation know, Generation X. Exactly, exactly. Um, I'll read the. I've got the Criterion DVD in front of me. I'll read the back of the box. Uh, Slacker, directed by Richard Linklater, presents a day in the life of a loose knit Austin, Texas subculture populated by eccentrics and overeducated young people. Shot on sixteen millimeter for a mere twenty three thousand dollars. Writer, producer, director Linklater and his crew of friends threw out any idea of a traditional plot choosing instead to create a tapestry of over a hundred characters, each as compelling as the last. Slacker is a, is a prescient look at an emerging generation of aggressive non-participants and one of the key films of the American independent film movement of the 1990s. Yeah, well, it, did start, did, it really did start that, that new age of independent film can be made by anybody. Yes, I, I consider Slacker to be... Like, uh, what the, like, the, the Ravelson kind of films, like Five Easy Pieces and Easy Rider and stuff, what those were for the 60s in independent American cinema, like how that created a brand new movement, I think Slacker did that here. Yeah, well, I mean, Kevin Smith, you just mentioned Clerks. Yeah. That was directly um, influenced by this film. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Smith is, I think, in love with this, this film. Well, famously, Smith is like talked ad nauseum about how he went and saw this at an art house cinema in New York on his 21st birthday and it made him realise, oh shit, I could make a film. And four years later he did. Yes. Uh, three years, because uh, it came out in 91, so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there is aspects in this film that you can see those Star Wars conversations in Clerks. Mm. You know when, the, when in Clerks they're talking about... Death Star Contractors. Yeah, the Death Star Contractors. And in, and in Slackers, there's the, the Scooby-Doo Snacks and Smurfs. Yes. <laughs> it's they're the same kind of conversation. It, instead, in like to some degree, but instead Linklater is kind of focusing more on like Tolstoy and James Joyce as opposed to Star Wars. It's, yeah. And dick jokes. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's the same kind of approach of let's just have young people that know too much about niche things talk at length yes exactly yeah I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish Clerks like Clerks is one of my favourite films but yeah but I think the, the, one of the big differences about this film is that there's a lot of sequences where there's not so much a conversation but people talking at other people yeah and you have like uh, immediately the one that jumps to mind is the per- there's like a group of people in like a share flat and one's just kind of ranting about stuff and then the camera just kind of ends up losing focus and, and interest in them and pans around and you've got like other people in the room playing that like flipping the comb on and like hitting each other on the knuckles game yeah while that rant is still going on for like another two minutes yeah. <laughs> and then there's like i mean there's countless oneers basically not, yeah. not an elaborate 
by any means, really. But but there's still uh, one. Some of them, I th- I think the I would call it like maybe the third shot of the film after the the car accident. That beautiful kind of it's not a crane because they couldn't afford a crane, but how the camera kind of floats away from the car accident. And, lifts up and then goes into the apartment and like this it's like the touch yeah. of, it's, it's him a, imitating Orson Welles is like touch of evil shot it's a, it's a two minute shot yeah uh, and it's it's really brilliant because obviously this man has hit his mum and the camera pulls back and you get to see he sets up all the characters so wonderfully and that everyone is not too concerned about the fact that there's a dead person yeah. on the street but they're, they're all just like, I, I just got to kind of, can you take care of this? Because I'm busy and yeah. I'm important and I got to move on. Yeah. And it, and it works at right at that opening as well as a great device to be able to con- like explain to us the viewer of what the film's going to do. Because we have our initial protagonist, our initial character, man on, a man who should have stayed at the bus stop. That's, that's Linklater. <laughs> that's Linklater. Yeah. yeah. Um, just kind of disappear and run off in the background. And so you're like, oh, I thought we were going to be following... Okay, never mind. Anyway, and it gives you the sense of, we're not going to be following anyone in this film. We're just kind of going to float. That's that's a perfect word. I think anybody that wants to analyze this film is going to use the word float for the camera. It (laughs) really does just float around um, Austin, Texas. It is... I don't know how better to explain the film than it is... Instead of, like, following a character, like a day in the life of a character, it is a day in the life of this city. Mm. And it's crazy <laughs> that he pulled that off. Yeah. Uh, yeah, even from the get-go when Linklater gets in the taxi and he's talking about... Essentially this, multiverses? Yeah, like, like <laughs> fractal, fractaling realities. Yeah. Where every decision is a node that splits off into mm. a different reality. Yeah, creating multiverse. Yeah, but the, and, and the film itself is kind of like that in that... Someone's making a, a someone's ha- kind of jumps into the scene, does something, and then just and goes off. And we're going to splinter off, and we're going to go and follow the f- them. The film could have made the choice to follow them, yeah, or maybe somebody else, or maybe, you know. So he's kind of setting up. That's why it's such a on. genius start of the film, where it is. It's essentially he's telling you, as the filmmaker, what we're going to be doing with the film. Where it's like, you know, this could happen, this could happen. You don't know. We're just going to kind of. If you go left, something could happen. If you go right, something will happen. And we're at the whim of the camera. Mm. And wherever the camera decides to go is the reality in the universe and the story that we're being presented. And it just roams. Yeah, there's like, I mean, there's vignettes of one minute long, two minutes long, five minutes long. Mm. And they're all, I guess you could say that they're all trying to define the word slacker. And that slacker might mean, uh, you know, someone that doesn't vote. Someone that's like a conspiracy theorist. Oh, that guy. You yeah, know, someone that's trying to sell Madonna's pap smear. <laughs> yes. The, uh, yeah, the, the most famous image from the film, the Madonna, Madonna pap smear lady, who, when I was doing research, found out she was a, was a drummer for the Butthole Surfers. Okay. And I looked in the end credits, and they had a song in the movie, actually. So well, I think a lot of the cast is either non-professionals or musicians. And they're just friends of yeah. Linklater's, essentially, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of... I like that connection to the underground, and it's all this it, it's, sprawling underground of Austin, Texas is alive and well, and they're all collaborating. Yeah, it's the Austin art scene, essentially, just all getting together to, like, let's put on a show. <laughs> yeah, that's never been done before. Mm. Um there was, uh, like my speaking of like conspiracy theorists, kind of that guy. I, I did pick up one thing on this most recent watch for me um, that just made me giggle to myself. Of like, oh, this is the tinfoil hat take on this film. Link later as a man who st- should have stayed at the bus uh, bus stop. 
at one point he opens talking about like how he had the strangest dream and like you know those really vivid dreams that he gets maybe once every two years and sometimes it's this sometimes it's that sometimes it's someone getting hit by a car and then he then goes on to witness somebody getting hit by a car okay and i'm like oh my god is this all a dreamscape reality thing <laughs> it does have a sense of uh, of the unreal mm. i mean it's kind of a, it's absurd yeah it's would you call it these are all caricatures of of reality or is it trying really to just not go like not push uh, a caricature so much but just trying uh, revel in in what you know the gen x young person is both if that's possible somehow it's i think it is going for a very sense of like trying to encapsulate this time and place in the world and in particular in culture and for young people but to be able to do that effectively it's presenting it in a heightened way like if if you were to present it as a totally realistic like almost pseudo documentary style thing or like in terms of like the performances i'm meaning not like the way the film's constructed but it would be boring well i'm sure that people would argue some people would argue that this is boring too yeah Uh. But when you start to realize, and you realize quickly, that it's a commentary on a, a portion of American culture, or American, the American populace, then it becomes quite deep. I, I, I think it's a universal idea on young... I don't think it's necessarily just America. There's definitely the American-centric stuff, like the obsession with Madonna and, you know, the yeah, JFK. JFK yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I think it's... it's uh, it's definitely more a universal look at young people. Mm. Like, yeah. But they're, they're all, I mean, they're all interactive. It's a busy film. Yes. There's lots of characters, obviously, as you said. Yeah. Um, but I get, it, it does a really good job of creating a sense of isolation too. Because there's at length conversations that aren't conversations, they're just people talking at people. Everyone feels really kind of lonely and disconnected. And it's kind of, it, it felt dystopian. Really, yeah. which is a really unsettling thing because, uh, on the one hand, dystopian means that it's kind of like a, a, a fantasy version of reality, but at the same time, you can see similarities of of real life in it. So, at what point did you sort of get the sense of dystopia kind of creeping in? Uh, not immediately, but everybody's conversations, everybody's interactions are so individualistic Mm. um, that it presents a world where nobody works and everybody is thinking about themselves, basically. Yes. And and that is a a form of dystopia. Yeah. Oh, very much so. And, like, I, I, again, like, also, like, agreeing with you, got a kind of sense with that as well. Um, there's, a, there's one great sequence where it's a guy going to uh, get a paper from a vending machine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the way that it's one of the few, like, cuts, like, from not a roving camera, it's like, we're going to get a brand new... We're starting afresh here. And where the camera is set up, it's like a four-lane road or whatever, and there's, like, a little diner. And off in the distance, you see, like, the business district. You see the office buildings, and you see the tall buildings that is, like, the central hub of Austin. And so you get the real sense from that shot, like, oh, we're on the outskirts here. And it really made me kind of pay attention to... It's a very open and weird area that this film's being shot in. It doesn't feel 
suburban. It doesn't feel urban. It's like very rundown and but kind of has a lot of character and uniqueness. Like it's it's odd. It's a, it's an odd place. Yeah. Mm. But that's but that's also because the characters are all really odd. <laughs> they're all really odd, and and they but they also are all okay with not just themselves being odd, but everybody else being odd. So it's just the norm. Yeah. There, it is like, there's very few occasions where some, like maybe a handful of times in the film, does someone not, it, everyone is comfortable with who they are and they will sometimes get rubbed the wrong way by someone else they're interacting. But whenever that happens, we end up following the person that has rubbed the other person the wrong way. And so it's like, Alright, this person is kind of fracturing away from this person, so let's stick with them and keep going and see what happens now. Like, with, again, they're going from that coffee shop guy, like, uh, it's him sitting there, and it's the woman, like, you should not torture women sexually, <laughs> like... Yeah. And, like, just getting yelled at, and then the guy, this weird guy in a bathrobe comes in and takes his papers, and, and the guy's like, what, what the fuck is going on? And so we're like, alright, well, let's follow this bathrobe guy now. Same with uh, the woman who's going to go to the movies with her friend or boyfriend. I couldn't quite pick up where they... It's like a boyfriend, I think. Yeah. yeah. And she goes and gets accosted by her old classmate about JFK. And she's like, I'm out of here. Yeah, true. So we're like, let's follow JFK guy. But but, it, but then it kind of works in the opposite way too, where... Uh, remember the sequence where this guy's coming from a funeral and he gets... He hitches a ride with these two dudes. Yeah. And he's like bumming smokes and he's... One of them being the director of photography, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and he's just, he's really, he's a bummer. This guy's a complete bummer and he's rude and he doesn't say thanks or anything, but the two guys are totally fine with him. Yeah. So. They live in their own little weird universe, those two guys, like, because we first encounter them with JFK guy who's just talking at them and he doesn't seem annoyed by it. He's just like, all right, cool. Yeah. Then what happened? Like, just not, like, kind of ambivalent. He's off in his own little isolated world and reality. And that mm-hmm. kind of seems to be their kind of deal. Yeah. It's. It definitely gives you a... It's an abstracted reality, but then there's reality, the proper, re- our reality kind of seeps through as well. Yeah. Um, and I really like the... There's a lot of uh, pseudo-intellectualism going on. A lot of people that talk a lot and they sound smart and they think they sound smart, but no one is really putting any of these quote-unquote smart things into yeah. action. Mm. Um, which I think is getting to the crux of the of the theme of of this film of essentially also being a slacker as well. It's this heightened idea of like I, I'm an intellectual. I could do stuff if I wanted to. It's just I don't want I to. I don't want to. But but it's like yeah, but can you? Like the the pseudo intellectualism stuff I always jump to is the uh, throwing the typewriter and stuff and the tent into the river guy. And his friends is like, I don't want to do it. This is my tent, man. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, no, you must. And then he starts reciting uh, Ulysses by James Joyce at yeah. him. And, you're like, and his other friend's like, fuck this, I'm out. Like, what is this? And the, the, the couple that we were talking about before with the um, the lady that they're going to go to see the film. Mm. And they're having a conversation on whether it's good to give a can of Coke to a homeless person. Mm. And it's all about, you know, citing sources. But, you know, like... This guy has just put together, uh, uh, formulated a, a, a theory of everything based off just random tidbits of shit that he read. As opposed to forming his own ideas on stuff. It is just yeah. cobbled together from other people's facts, I guess. But... Which is kind of what the film is. It's cobbled well, together from other little things. Yeah, but... And, and I guess it feels cynical. 
But then again, there's I... these sequences where let's talk about the oblique strategies cards, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a guy in a cowboy hat and he comes across this lady that's been beat up uh, and she's got these oblique strategy cards, which I learned. This is like, this is why if you do a research, yeah, you the go, the go deep dive. I was like, what is this oblique strategy cards? I looked it up and it was invented in 1975 by Brian Eno. Yes, of all people, fucking Brian Eno. <laughs> yeah, and these cards, you know, they're, they're a way of challenging yourself to think differently. So, mm. and actually I learned that... Um, a lot of musicians were using these cards as a creative process. So REM had it in their studio. Which Coldplay had it in their studio. Yep. Phoenix, MGMT. They're all this... Anyway, mm. one of the cards that he pulls um, isn't from the original deck. It's from... I think Richard wrote it. He, he must have, I suppose. Like added one that fit in for the narrative. Yeah, and it says, Withdrawing and disgust is not the same as... It's not the same thing as apathy. Which is I think the one of the most interesting quotes from this film. Yeah. In that you'd think that these characters are all cynical, but when you look at it through the idea of if you just withdraw in disgust, it's not quite apathy. It's more everything is crazy and I just kind of want to retreat. Yeah. That's what, that's what it seems most of the characters, if not all the characters, are doing. Yeah, they're like, I'm going to stick with the situation for as long as I can but then all, but then eventually just kind of recoil and go away there's like they're a part of the system they don't really approve of the system but what do they do yeah you can't do nothing you just talk about it exactly and, yeah. and, and there's and without having but also having complete inaction yeah and I don't think it it, it comes from a place of cynicism I think it comes from a genuine place of humor and love and intrigue like i don't think linklater is trying to he doesn't nothing any interview any commentary i've listened to with him any anything i've seen him do and talk anytime i've seen talk he seems like the most lovely genuine gentle nice guy Mm. so i do not get a sense of cynicism whatsoever from it I, i think it's him just being like this is just what people are like so let's do it crank that up to 11 and have fun yeah well i mean and and examine that i guess uh, i mean all the characters are young i think there's a couple of exceptions and there's there's an kind of old man yeah the ufo nut yeah uh the (laughs) the anarchist who's by the way he's drinking like this really weird brown water yeah um and there's it keeps changing it's like cut to cut it's like yeah. chocolate milk at one point and then it's like not quite coffee like a it's like a milky water. almost yeah some continuity errors but that guy's just oh and did you catch the boom mic at one point no i didn't at the uh, madonna paps me a scene like just before then the boom mic drops into frame briefly oh my goodness this film sucks not recommend unwatchable <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, but yeah, and then you've also got the, uh, the old man anarchist who is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And again, I, I was researching what he was talking about. Uh, and I was trying to work out his character as well, because he's not, he, he's not in his twenties. He's a man that's in his fifties, it seems. Um, and I was trying to work out what, what, where does he fit in this whole, in this whole theme? And he's idolizing, uh, What's his name? Charles Whitman? Yep. The Texas Tower Sniper? Yes. Who... And I didn't... I, didn't, I'm, I think I'd heard about this guy a while back, but I did a bit of research because the film's great in that it, he, they, they say these things. These, they put these words out there, these books out there, these films out there, these people out there, 
And it's up to you to pick up on that and go, what, what is that? What is this person talking yeah. about? And so he was a guy that uh, killed his wife and mother and then went to the Texas University town and started just indiscriminately shooting people. Famous uh, context for you, uh, Simpsons, Ned has the dream because he's sick of, there's Homer, there's oh, Homer. Yeah, 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 That's yeah, yeah. what that's a reference to. Okay. And it, I think, and I, it, it turns out that the guy had a brain tumor and I think... Yeah, and it was that just like chemical been, misfire and things, you know. Yeah, because he couldn't work out. He was getting headaches and he was couldn't work out why he was feeling so fucked up, but he was. Yeah, and wasn't it like he, he initially tried to like drill a hole in his head or something to relieve the pressure? So there's something know. else like that. But. I don't know. But anyway, this is, this is the kind of person that the anarchist idolizes. Mm. And that definitely, to me, seems like it's championing the whole idea of it's not apathy. We're going to celebrate the disgust of what's happening out there. Um, so the fact that, what, what do you think about the fact that they chose to have an anarchist that's 50? Is he like the through line Just, of this generation growing up and, and kind of holding on to... Maybe. I, I don't... Because uh, with that character as well, like he, he talks about being a libertarian as well, which which stands out to me. And I think because of that, like his idolization of the anarchic ways and things. I think it's, it's a bit rough kind of aligning it with Whitman and things, but it's, um, the idea of like, because Whitman was someone who was able to break free from the system. Like the libertarian is like, no, I just stand for basic rights. I don't stand for left or Democrat or Republican. I just stand for what is right. Like, you know, that's, I stand for Liberty. Yeah. And so, and uh, that's, a little sidebar thing but uh, answering your question like where why he is there why make a the old man anarchist I think it's a almost cautionary type character because it's the example of what what any one of our characters that we've been presented with previously what would happen to them if they were left to their own devices yeah. and didn't move on didn't grow didn't you know, they, they were kind of stuck in the phase that we see them in, in this film. Um, they, they would eventually grow into that, which is why I think the end of the film is so interesting and important. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you get the splintering off of friends, like with uh, Steve, with the van, um, and the girls that go, like, decide, like, oh, we're going to go into this party and things and not you, and then from that you then go to another party and you have... That's where the first time the film shifts into the pixel vision camera. Oh, yes. It starts to break down and become something... It's like, at this point now, we're starting to become something different. Like, we're, we're starting to evolve. We're starting to change. And then, later on from that, you eventually have a group of... We think we're going to follow another group of characters in a car, but instead we swap to an 8 millimeter camera, and they throw it away. And that's, like, them. Oh, the last, the last five minutes of this film is... is spectacular yes <laughs> there's that the, the start I mean the start of the ending seems to be where this old man on his voice recorder is uh, talking into it and he's saying stuff like the tragedy of life is oh, yeah. you know, is that man is never free uh, yet strives for what he can never be so it's the first instance in the whole film where I was I was like someone is saying something that's sincere now yes and it's not just that but I, I view, always, always view that as a meta statement about the characters that we've seen throughout the film it's the film is commenting on the film itself at that point by having this person. He's essentially talking about what's going on with everyone. It's like everyone's kind of trapped in, yeah. trapped as a human. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, that's the first sincere thing. But then, of course, he gets drowned out by this guy, this guy in a car with a loudspeakers talking about a free weapon giveaway program. Yeah. Uh, which is just... He's just an just insane amazing person. To, to, yeah. It's an amazing contrast to go from a quiet old man talking about sincere shit, earnest stuff about life, to a guy just going, like, we should bring guns, pointed sticks knives and just start fucking giving them away and everyone can just have a free-for-all that's going to solve all the problems <laughs> yeah just bellowing this out like blues brothers style like from his car but then and then it switches <laughs> to yeah this super eight footage yeah of these of these kids having fun and and it's i think it's is it the first instance of real music yes in the in the film? non the first like of non-diegetic non music. yeah and it's fun and it's lively and it's and you know you, you've been Condition to watch this kind of existential crisis happening for all these people, basically. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of devolves into really fast cuts, which we haven't seen. Actually, yeah. um, trivia-wise, there's like 163 cuts in the film. Yeah, when the average film has a, roughly like, you know, three to 5,000 cuts, this has only 163. And so. a third of them are this Super 8 footage. Yeah. They only the happen in the last five minutes. <laughs> Uh, where it's like again it's it's that like I don't know if that's a statement on like A it just brings some liveliness in at the end there because obviously having the song and you know kind of cutting and the editing toward with that like edit with music or if it is hey we're, get, we're shifting away from this world that we've inhabited for the last 90 minutes 95 minutes we're now going to shift into something that's a little bit more known where we are actually going to be having cuts and we're going to be getting back into kind of form and structure to some degree and yeah, oh, this, this that's is, just a yeah. This is my read on it. Um, they, you know, they they're, they're filming, having fun with the Super 8 camera. They go up to this hill and they're pouring beer over a couple books. Yes, and then they kick the books off the and cliff. The as books well. off, and and I researched the books. I couldn't find anything out about Southwest action. I couldn't find anything, but um, the other one, Growing Up Absurd. Yes. Uh, the subtitle is Problems of Youth uh, in Organized Society. And that film, uh, that book asserts that the, the reason why the youth are so fucked up is because America, basically the whole Western world, um, is following uh, this drive behind corporations mm. uh, and it makes our lives meaningless. But then it's so interesting that they're just pouring beer over that and just kicking it off a cliff. Yeah. As if they, they go... I mean, they're obviously all that, these people yeah. are reading books. They're all, yeah. they, they like to read books and quote them. Well, the, it's the late eighties. We didn't have the internet yet. No. <laughs> but they they they're kicking it off the edge of the, the cliff and going like, you know, fuck it, don't worry about it. Yep. Uh, it's almost like it's bookended. You start off with Richard Linklater, the filmmaker, and you finish the film with a bunch of filmmakers having fun. Yes, that's that's the key thing I think. There. Yeah, and so that's what when you said before that it's not cynical. Yeah. That's I, I agree. Yeah. Because that ending is this is this is fucking crazy and you can still just fucking observe it and have fun. Exactly. That's the the final thing, like what I get from that, like them up on the rocks, pouring beer over the books, kicking them off the cliff, and then eventually throwing the camera itself off the cliff. And there's a beautiful like one second freeze frame of him like the guy going to throw the camera, and then he throws the camera. And that is, like, essentially, like, Linklater being, like, you can have fun and you can create art, but be okay to throw it away. Like, it, like, oh, okay. it doesn't matter. Like, just have fun. 
Don't be pretentious. Don't try and adhere to all these lofty thoughts. Just have fun and throw it away. Yeah, and it goes even beyond that because it's saying trash the books that... That, that try and structure that, you and say... That try, yeah, that try and organise all the chaos. Yeah. Just have fun and be okay with throwing it away. Yeah, it's... It's, <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting piece idea. of art, this film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting idea. I mean, he was 30 when he made this. Hmm. So he's definitely you part how of old that. He actually is. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's an old dude. He's not that old. He's in his sixties now. I guess so. He feels younger because he's always. Well, well that's like what I mean. Like stuff, I, you watch Dazed and Confused, and you get a sense of that film is made by someone who was like twenty six or something. Like, but, you know, he was in his mid thirties by that point. Yeah. Uh, so, he, so he seems to be putting himself in that category of of I'm also part of this Gen X. Um, not apathy, but withdrawn in disgust situation. Yeah. And he's very clearly a highly intellectual man, <laughs> but at the same yeah. time is able to, like I said, like have fun with what he's doing. Yeah. Well, as you said, he didn't do the film school stuff, but he was, he was reading a lot. And I think, you know, he's watching Scorsese films and thought, yeah, this is pretty fucking cool. I can make some movies maybe. Yeah. And then to think, and like watching this film, like you could very easily see like his next film, like, you know, going, staying on that kind of art route, but instead doing, like, a, a fucking studio comedy for Universal that he wrote and directed that is, like, one of the best studio comedies ever. <laughs> like, I, he's so interesting. I didn't know he did School of Rock. Oh, no, I'm meaning Dazed and Confused. Oh, Dazed and Confused. That was his very next film after this. Yeah, it's very different. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's accomplished. It's polished. Yeah, yeah. It's it, Well, that's what I mean. Like, it, it is so... But that, that being said as well, like, this film is amazingly constructed and made. Like, mm. that is, that's what I mean, like, coming out of the gate, like, just with a very clear and assured vision. And I think, like, especially with his early films, it goes hand in hand, I think you have to say, Richard Linklater and Lee Daniel, the cinematographer, who also shot uh, Dazed and Confused and a bunch of films for him as well. Mm. Um, they, I think they just work so well together. And it's like a simpatico of ideas and mentalities, and it's just perfect. Mm. Yeah, he's he's the unique in the um, in all the film. Um, so you you hadn't you said you haven't seen any of the before trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen Waking Life? I, I think I saw that fucking ages ago. Okay, uh, and I don't remember it. Same mm-hmm. with Scanner Darkly. I saw that ages ago, but I can't really remember any of it. Yeah. Um, um I, I bring that up because I'm curious. Like the like watching this again today, it was like. I can't think of another film like this before. Like, this was shot in 1989, came out in 1991. I can't think of this type of film existing yeah. that, that I've seen prior and, to 1991. Yeah. No, I, I was watching... Um, Cole came home from work, uh, and I was in my second viewing. Yep. Uh, and she was like, oh, you're watching Slacker. She knew I was going to do the podcast, obviously. Um, and she sat down and started watching. She's like, oh, this reminds me of this like animated film. I can't, I don't know who made, I don't know what the name was. Um, but it's like the same kind of thing, people sitting around and having existential conversations and stuff. And she's like, I was like, well, let's try and find it. Cause I want to compare this film to other things. Um, and she's like, oh, I don't know what to Google. And I said, Google, Google Link Ladder. Yeah. <laughs> and it was Waking Life. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah, that's why I've just got a smile on my face because I... Yeah. It, she's, and so she life. found... She's like, oh man, I saw this... I saw this like, you know, 10 years ago. It came out in like 2001, 2002, yeah. something like that. 
so she she saw it ages ago and forgot about it, and this this film reminded her of it. Yeah. Um, for you know, for obvious reasons. Written and directed by Richard Linklater. <laughs> so yeah, he definitely has definitely has his own style that is extremely unique. Yeah, um, I I kind of just want to get you to watch the Before trilogy now. Like we'll eventually do them, but it's not until like the eight hundreds. So I'd be like, oh, okay. if you dug this, watch the Before trilogy. They are great. They're like a kind of mashup between this kind of style of filmmaking with a little bit of the boyhood stuff because he it's every 10 years there's a new one and it's picking up on these same characters 10 years yeah. later 10 years later 10 years later and it is just yeah I've heard of the concept I mean a lot of his films are in the concept aren't mm, they? yeah and it's just like um, like like it's just before sunrise and before sunset it's just these two characters spending time together before sunrise and before sunset like walking around and just Don't conversing they, they, they go off to their own exist like lives and then yep. come back and then 10 years later they happenstance meet again and they spend mm. then before sunset they're on a train together before sunrise they are like it's back in Paris and uh, Jesse um, Ethan Hawke character is there on a book tour he's now an author and he bumps into her and they're like well let's spend the afternoon together and they just walk around catching up and conversing about life for like two hours <laughs> it's just like amazing beautiful films it's, it's it's great to have a filmmaker that that does this kind of thing. It's so abstract, but I mean the concepts are quite abstract. Mm. Boyhood's uh, a pretty abstract idea. Yeah, say but, what you but, will about um, the film. I'm like I know there are people that really don't like Boyhood. I don't like it. Mm. I, I don't. I, I love the concept, uh, and it's. It, I just thought that it was that the character boy was <laughs> boy um, in Boyhood. Well, yeah, he wasn't. <laughs> ultimately in this film you can watch it and people are, are talking at ad nauseum about what seemingly nothing but you know you listen long enough and you can start to piece together all these themes and connect them to you know my own reality yeah with boyhood i didn't get that so. no no because it's not necessarily trying to deal with any lofty existential surrealistic ideas it is it's essentially just following the life of a kid growing up yeah, but it didn't. Yeah, we'll talk about Boyhood when we get to Boyhood. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't matter. Maybe I change my mind. I watch it again, and I'll be like, you know, that was great. Yeah, it's it's fine. Um, but uh, the the one thing that like always floors me with Slacker, like when it happens, um, you have a character. I think it is with the um the the oblique cards, people, uh, ladies, when they walk away from that, and the camera pans across, and all of a sudden you see it's sunset. And you're like, holy shit, this movie has somehow transitioned through an entire day and I didn't even notice. Mm. Like, with the lighting in particular. Like, how they pull that off, to me, is jaw-dropping. Like, they plan it to such a degree that this sequence is going to be... We have to shoot it at this time to represent this sort of lighting so we can can gradually have this progression of, like, the light slowly fading without the audience necessarily even realising it's happening. I think it was like shot in two months or something like that. Yeah, it was over July and August, so in the middle of summer. So that's, you know, yeah. you got light a little bit later into the evening as well. So, yeah. Do you think that the, the film uh, is it timeless? can be applied to... I, I think you can apply it to all our, our current generations. Yeah. You know? I, I think it works both as a... It's very timeless because it is a snapshot of youth... Like that kind of, pe- you know, people in their 20s and like at crossroads, like the existential bullshitty conversations you have. 
but it also works. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, 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 you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, like, you, not, not try, I'm not trying to be dismissive of it, but it's you, you can yeah, you sound smart before you're wise, kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it also works brilliantly as a snapshot of 1990. Like this movie is 1990. <laughs> like holy hell. Yeah. Oh fucking nice. <laughs> but, but you can still. I mean, like the fact that all these people are. Uh, so vocal about their own ideas and yet they do nothing yeah can be applied to uh the virtual like internet space today mm. so easily the oh fa- yeah facebook activists with no. just you know they they kill cancer by liking videos and posts yeah it's the same thing it's the same thing as just going like hey i'm i'm smart and you need to hear me but i'm not going to really do anything about the situation but, yeah but i would also say like when when i was the age of these characters like you know say like 22 23 and things like just finishing university and just sitting at home getting drunk or stoned or whatever and just being like having these kind of conversations about like this is this is what the system's doing this is what we need to do this is what we do it so you're gonna do that no i'll do that tomorrow <laughs> like that's yeah yeah that that is just something people do in their twenties. Like I am was one hundred percent guilty of that. Like it's, yeah, that, so and so it is. That's why it's a universal kind of film because you are like, when you are that age when you see this film, you are like, I relate. I understand exactly what these people are talking about. When you're older, you're like, oh my god, I remember that at that time. Like you know, it just works perfectly. It's one of the. I think yeah, it's one of those films where if you're old, you know. Our age, hmm. old, older than being growing up. Yeah. Um, then you can look at the film in the capacity that we're looking at, it and it's a snapshot um, in time, and, and people are you know apathetic and whatever. But if you're a kid, it also excels at. Uh, you look at these films, this film, these characters, and you think they're cool. You want to emulate them. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, it's like it's like Clerks in that degree. It's like uh, the Tarantino films, Reservoir Dogs, and Pulp Fiction. Um, you know when you're, you're too young to fully understand what's happening but you just whatever it, you're watching sounds and looks cool it oozes like style and hipness and you're yeah. just like that is awesome and I mean in all the Tarantino dialogue you can kind of pick it up in this as well that these people just talking shit yeah. and it sounds cool Put it on camera and it's all of a sudden, you know, the mundane is cool. Exactly. Um, and Tarantino, obviously, made that times. an art form. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is just a wholly unique film and very worthy of its place, I think, on the Mount Rushmore of 90s American independent cinema. I think just in general, it's so influential. Um, and I, the, it kind of tickled me that when it cuts to the credits and you have this really happy jovial music yeah and it's just this organ it's like a funeral oh that, that's actually a song by the butthole surfers okay <laughs> yeah i just felt like yeah it was just like the last really great joke of the film was yeah. just like oh we're gonna we're gonna have a funeral now yeah <laughs> it's done a portion of the american public we're gonna have a funeral yeah and there's these weird gurgling noises it's like it's like you're in a sewer or something it's just an odd odd song by butthole surfers who were a local austin band and things at that time hadn't kind of broken through with their big hit pepper yet <laughs> oh yeah um i loved it i i don't think i think i've covered off on on everything i feel like you could do it'd be a really easy film to do a commentary on oh god yeah because because of the there's all these references of the segmented nature of it yeah and the fact that that 
nearly every five minutes there's some book or image or whatever that you could talk at length to. Yeah. Um, and, and like, I, I found it interesting, like, looking at the special features, the fact that there are three audio commentaries for this film alone. <laughs> like, Did you go through some special features for this? Um, I didn't get a chance to today. I had a, read, a bit of a read of the booklet. I was reading John Pearson's uh, essay because I'm a big fan of John Pearson. Um, but I have gone through them all before. This was one of the first criterions I've ever, I ever bought. Okay. Way back when it first came out in 2004. Got this one. Yeah, I've got a. I've got the old first pressing DVD of this one. Give me a look at this. It's pretty loaded. Oh, it's amazing. It uh, includes. Well, do, shit. Do we get onto that yeah. right now? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll jump back to trivia in a second, but um, yeah. So it's still in print from Criterion as a one disc Blu-ray or a two disc DVD, and it comes with three audio commentaries featuring Linkletter and members of the cast and crew. Uh, it's impossible to learn to plow by reading books. Linklater's first full-length film with audio commentary by Linklater. Woodshock, a 1985 16mm film, a short film by Richard Linklater and Lee Daniel. Uh, casting tapes uh, featuring select auditions from more than 100 cast members. The Roadmap, a working script for Slacker, including 14 deleted scenes and alternate takes uh, on the DVD. So it's the script and you can click on and like go across like a virtual kind of script to flip through uh deleted scenes alternate takes uh on the blu-ray not the roadmap script uh footage from slacker's 10th anniversary reunion early film treatment home movies 10 minute trailer for the 2005 documentary about the landmark austin cafe les amis uh which is featured in the film theatrical trailer uh a still gallery featuring hundreds of behind the scenes photographs and publicity photos uh culture slacker culture essay written by Linklater himself uh, information about the Austin Film Society, founded in 1985 by Linklater and Daniel, including early flyers from the screenings of Slacker, uh, as well as a completely thick and loaded booklet the Criterion have put with it. It's obscene. This, yeah. this edition of Slacker is obscene. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was one where I remember back in like 2004, like paying like $60, $70 to get this here in Australia. And everyone's like, you're fucking madman and I'm like no I am not <laughs> like this shit <laughs> this shit is amazing this is such an incredible addition yeah I'm baffled oh, yeah, it's, it's crazy it's fantastic uh, and I'm surprised that there's so much retained um, I mean I suppose it's 1990 at that stage but you don't typically get so much behind the scenes stuff um, you know even in even later when DVDs were out I, I get a sense that because this film exploded like it did in terms of a lot of people getting behind it as a landmark film of independent cinema, like John Pearson in particular, um, he that incredible man, um, that Linklater, I think, probably had presence of mind to preserve stuff, at least for his own records, at least, if not for... You know, the, the fact that he, before he even made, five years before he made this film, he founded a film society. <laughs> like, you know, he, yeah, that's right. he understands the important the importance of film and kind of keeping history. So Recording it all, yeah. Yeah, so th- that's my assumption at least, so. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, do you want to hear a little bit of trivia that we haven't gone through already? Okay. Uh, so the film was nominated for two Independent Spirit Awards, including Best First Feature and Best Director. It was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at the 1991 uh, Sundance Film Festival, and in 2012, it was inducted into the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. Rightly so. Yeah, of course. Um, 
we've talked about how 163 shots. Uh, yeah, so the, the bar scene when he says it's in pixel vis- vision, that is actually shot on the Fisher-Price pixel vision camcorder that was like a baby's first video camera toy. Oh, cute. He actually used that. You put like a VHS tape in and it, that's exactly what it looked like. It shot in a really kind of pixelated, shitty camera. So he actually had one of those and that's what that was shot on. It'd be fun to kind of go back and use that those kinds of cameras today. Oh, yeah. Um, only six lights were used to shoot the film. <laughs> well, it's mostly day. Exactly. You know, they're, they're outside. You don't need... Mm. Uh, there were two original titles for the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nobody Boy, which is a bit... Eh. And the other one is No Longer, Not Yet. Well, I'm glad they changed it. Slacker works perfectly for it. It's nice to have a title where you can explore the definition of that title through the film. Mm. Um, Roger Ebert loved the film. He gave it three out of four. Not not quite a perfect score, but... um. He said, Slacker is a movie with an appeal almost impossible to describe. Although the medium, although the method of the director, Richard Linklater, is as clear as day. He wants to show us a certain strata of campus life at the present time. Uh, Vincent Canby also loved, it was like universally loved and admired this film. Like, holy yeah, it's shit. a kind of instant classic. Yeah. yeah. Um, it had a, who picked it up? There was a, yeah, it got bought out of Sundance by a small production company, uh, small, uh, Orion Classics picked it up. Uh, nationwide distribution, uh, they swapped it over from 16mm to 35mm, um, but obviously knowing that it didn't really have mass appeal, they only put it out sort of on, you know, art house cinemas in New York and LA, but it went on to gross um, $1.2 million off of a 35, about uh, 23,000, yeah. Yeah, so. So it's considerably successful. Uh, yes, yes. Um, that's fantastic. Hmm. And I do know that um, the $23,000 and things, that was... Um, John Pearson interviewed uh, Richard Linklater in an issue of Filmmaker Magazine and actually had his breakdown of the budget and that's what Kevin Smith used of like that exact one of like alright $5,000 for camera hire for 16 you know that exact how to make a budget for a film he used from Slacker sure. and was like we aim to not go over that <laughs> like and here's like a blueprint of how much stuff should cost and what we could do so so it's it's yeah. It influenced Kevin Smith to the degree of business plan. Yeah, essentially. And like, I, I was actually randomly listening to him on a podcast today and he was talking about this actually. IMDb has a new podcast about uh, the films that changed my life. And he was he was the episode today and he was talking about Slacker and that um, it influenced him so much so that they imitated Richard Linklater, like how he went from independent film made for $23,000 to then making a studio comedy released by Universal through, and then the production company was Alphaville and Gramercy. And that's what they did with Morass, down to the point of having Sean Daniels and Jim Jacks, the same producers that produced Dazed and Confused, produce Morass. Like, he idolized him. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the it seems like the, um, uh, the Hollywood companies decided, well, hey, it's time now to put... Uh, independent cinema out in the forefront of mainstream well that's what happened because you had people like Linklater you, uh, Sam Raimi had done it a little bit earlier uh, the Coen brothers as well they were kind of you know earlier in the 80s kind of broke through like that but then in the 90s you had Linklater you had um, Tarantino Kevin Smith like all of these people like and it's still happening yeah um, all, all the basically half the Marvel movies are like that you get some small 
It's yeah. a director that's made a tiny film and then, you know, they're all of a sudden making these huge blockbusters. Either that or you get them, they they do their work on television. Like, uh, I've just done a re-watch of Community, now that it's all on Netflix. Amazing show, but it's the Russo brothers directed, like, half of those episodes throughout that entire run. And then they stopped directing Community to go fucking make Aven- the highest grossing film of all time. <laughs> like, Avengers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. And James Gunn was, like, went from super to... Uh, Guardians. Yeah, exactly. So, hmm. it's a good model. I mean, in theory, it's a good model. And, they're, they're and then you have ones Star like Wars shit. Star Wars and Jurassic World, and you know yeah. all that garbage. But hey, anywho. Um, but yeah, that's really about it for trivia and stuff. Um, unless you got anything else, I guess that'll probably wrap us up. Looking at Richard Linklater's Slacker. Um, this is one if you've never seen it. Try and track it down. Like Tom said, it's it's literally on YouTube. You can watch it. It's really worth your time. It's something real different and unique. Yes. But that brings us to our next film. Cronenberg? Cronenberg! Oh my goodness. Long live the new flesh. It's time for Videodrome, everybody. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Oh my, you've, you've never seen Videodrome? No, I keep... Just like The Naked Lunch, I, I wanted to... I, I fucking love Cronenberg. And um, I decided that I would wait... For, to watch these some of these films. I've never seen Videodrome, uh, so I'm extremely excited to, to have a first viewing. Yeah, I, I have not watched this for a couple of years, but it is um, probably in my top three Cronenberg films, so oh. I'm, I'm very excited to rewatch. So, mm. And I think we're going to have a guest on for that episode as well, so, yeah, stay tuned for that. Can we say who it is? Sure, it is uh, Eric... Uh, good friend Eric who has been on a couple episodes and he's my co-host on the other podcast uh, you haven't seen that so he's going to jump over and do some Criterion with us he is also a big Cronenberg fan so excellent yeah um, but I guess that'll probably wrap us up for this week's episode uh, thanks for listening everybody if you have any comments or queries or any of that you can uh, send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at criterionquest Otherwise, we'll be back in a week's time for Cronenberg. (laughs) (laughs) For this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time.